Can you imagine sitting in the pub chatting with your mates only to be interrupted by ads? Well, unfortunately, that does happen here at the Homebrew Pub because we're just trying to keep the lights on. However, if you would like to support us directly and get access to ad-free episodes of the Homebrew Pub, please head on over to our Patreon. You can find a link to that on our website, thehomebrewpub.com, and join our mug club. Again, our website, thehomebrewpub.com. I'll see you in the pub after the next couple of ads. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Homebrew Pub, the only pub in existence where every beer on tap is made by a homebrewer. And on this ethereal plane, the Homebrew Pub will turn into the guest brewer's perfect brew pub. So please come in, grab a stool, and grab a pint. And so we welcome to the Homebrew Pub, the executive director of the American Homebrewers Association, so perhaps the ultimate homebrewer, Julia Huss. Well, hi there. And hi. I'm, I'm only one of, of many millions of homebrewers. This is, this is true. How are you finding being the executive director of, uh, of the AHA? Uh, American Homebrewers Association is an amazing institution, 40 plus years strong, really has contributed to an incredible hobby reaching all walks of life over those years and including mine um, and now I get to, to lead it so I'm, I'm a kid in a candy store I'm loving it I work with amazing people um, backed by the National Brewers Association which is the parent um, org of the AHA and I couldn't be more excited to be in this role. So how did you first get into homebrewing? I when I was younger before 10 years old believe it or not and I'm 53 years young today. And Happy I'm birthday. Right now. Not my birthday. But <laughs> I was uh, and my brother had a beer can collection. So Buriana is a big deal. And I certainly keep want, got, want to get on my radar to reach out with a lot of the Buriana folks because that's a whole other subculture within itself, right? And my older brother, who's three years older, collected um, beer cans in the Maryland, D.C. area where we grew up, dumpster diving, you know, asking at parents' parties this and that, and there was a place in um, Washington, D.C., not that far from our home, called the Brick Skeller. The Brick Skeller at the time had 500 different um, beers on the menu, and it was no draft, it was only bottles and cans. So me and my brother and my parents would go there every few months to fill my, my brother's quota needs for his Buriana beer collection, and I was less than 10, looking at you know happy parents eating and drinking, talking to the people next to them, happy brother getting his beer cans, and then all of the different packages really attracted my eye. And I just realized different beers, different stories, different colors, different styles, different um, places from the world that they were produced. And so from early age on, I think I was always paying attention to beer because of that. That's awesome. So then how old were you when you got into homebrewing and what drew you to that? Sure. So I did wait till I was 21. And when I was legal um, and, and, and leading up to it, I think from those younger years, I had always said, I want to brew beer. 
Like I, for some reason that was just in my brain. I want to brew beer. I was into lots of sensory things too. Um, my, my dad would travel and bring back soaps or um, you know, perfume samples or uh, tinctures, you know, uh, shampoos. I had lunch boxes full of that stuff. I would take them out, smell them, open them up, feel the packaging of the, the wrapper of the soap and, and, and different things. And so I was always paying attention to sensory. And when my mom would cook, I'd try to play like, what, what is she making while I'm upstairs and she's down in the kitchen? Just guess what that meal is this evening. Um, so beer fit to me of wanting to try that. And so when I was 21, me and my friend Charlie Gunn bought a kit. It was a Scottish ale kit. Um, I wish I remember the act of buying it. I do not. I do not remember if we, what, what store we went to. At that time, we probably didn't order it online. <laughs> but it was from the Maryland area somewhere. And we brewed a, a Scottish all-extract beer. And we couldn't believe two months later what an incredible beer that was when we handed it to our friends. And they just went gaga over it. So did we. Um, and... and there was no turning back from there. It does quickly become an addiction. Because, I mean, I started out on a, a little one-gallon kit. That was the first beer I ever made. And ten years later, I don't even want to guess how much money and equipment has gone into this hobby. <laughs> right. And it's, it can go to that level, right? I mean, if you build birdhouses or start paragliding or do any hobby, mountain biking, you know, you can get real geeky with it. And it gives you joy and pleasure to do that. And there's so many of us that are on that geek level. Um, and there's also people that, you know, just kind of uh, hover at the intermediate level and only do partial, you know, brew, partial extract um, with some grain. Some just do extract. And I've made an extract beer um, in the recent past, and it was amazing. So I think there's a lot of level for um, room for complexity. Uh, but anybody homebrewing does not have to go all the way to the geekadom like you and I probably are. Uh, to enjoy the hobby, but I really, hanging with the geeks is where I learn the most. Um, and I, I, I truly want all the geeks like me and you to, to continue to mentor those that, that want to come along and, and, and brew and learn. I'm really glad you mentioned extract because I feel there is snobbery in like some all grain brewing circles that, you know, you start out in extract, but then you never go back to it. But you can brew some extraordinary beers with extract. You really, really can. And let's let's think about taking a, a can of soup from the from the pantry, right? Mushroom soup. I could still put thyme and, and tarragon in that mushroom soup from the can while it's simmering on the stovetop. I can still drizzle in a little cream or milk and doctor it up. It doesn't mean I have to, you know, go through the conversion um, of grains. Uh, for example, if you take that, um, translate that soup analogy to beer with an extract, which for those listening, if you're listening, you're probably pretty geeky. Um, but if you're not, you know, extract is really a condensed version of already converted um, grains that have been malted, and they're ready and accessible for the yeast to uh, eat the sugars in that extract. Um, it's often a thick liquid. Think of honey, kind of pulling it from the jar where it's a little bit colder, right? That's that's a jar of extract. And when you go ahead and brew that stovetop and, and put some yeast um, in there, after it's cooled, and, and before it's cooled, you put some hops in there because it came with the kit, you can make amazing beer, and you can just stick with the kit, or you can still doctor up the, the kit. You can still doctor up what's give, been given to you in that kit, right? Yeah, I mean, I think every, obviously, when I started, I stuck very much to the rules, but every recipe I look at now will um, rip off in some way or another. 
take it and you make it your own. And just the very act of brewing, it doesn't matter if you're taking someone else's recipe, depending on your process, that's going to be your beer. Like the, the person who originally brewed it is not going to be able to replicate what you just did and probably vice versa. Yeah. And so we each, it's a beautiful thing, um, brewing. And I, I do see a lot of poetry to it as well as science and chemistry, um, which, you know, you can't, you can't trick the laws of nature, uh, but you can manipulate um, the sensory world so things are more pleasing to your palate. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's what's really fun, whether you're extract brewing back to that or you're working with the grains, the, the, the malted converted grains that you'll buy in a homebrew shop. Um, most of the people are buying that instead of um, really going geeky, which is converting your own grains, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, malting your own barley. But if you're, you're going to a homebrew shop and doing an all grain batch um, and you're not starting from extract, that's a longer process. Uh, there's more nuance involved. There's more temperature controls needed. There's more um, the need for a watchful eye and an engaged presence on the pH levels, right? Your water chemistry really matters um, and all that. And, and that's a super fun, rewarding way to go um, when you get to that level. And I really, you know, my setup's 12-gallon stainless kettles. Uh, I pull out the, the Cajun cookers and, and go upstairs outside um, to the patio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's usually a four- to six-hour brew day. Um, halfway through mash, I crack a beer and start, you know, tasting maybe some, something that um, has, my, has my eye. And I enjoy that process so much. It's also, though, very rewarding to brew in smaller quantities, as little as one gallon. A lot of people brew, you know, stovetop in the kitchen, one gallon up to five gallons. Um, and the weather doesn't affect you. Uh, you don't have as many variables or equipment needed. And I do, I do all forms, right? I, mm-hmm. I'm not just these days doing all grain brewing, um, but that is su- certainly where if you want to go on the deep journey down the rabbit hole of learning that chemistry, learning that science, um, that's, that's where you're going to end up. So when, you're, when you are approaching a, a brew or, or a new beer, I mean, what are the things that you particularly pay attention to? I mean, is it very much the recipe or are you, you know, doing the water chemistry, which I will confess is something that scares me? Um, I mean, how, how do you approach, like, creating that new beer or even replicating, like, a favorite of yours? Right. And so you bring up, my friend, two kind of categories of recipes. Or there's actually three in, in my view. One is clone recipes, right? It's and and AmericanHomebrewersAssociation.org for for you know membership and and the public can access many many recipes, and we have clone recipes, which is a clone of a commercial beer. Uh, say you love you know Bell's Two Hearted, uh, you you might not have a clone recipe on our website uh, for the brewery down the street, but you might. I mean, there's hundreds of there's thousands of recipes on there. <laughs> so clone recipes to me are a sometimes. I tend to more so gravitate to recipes that uh, have some emotional connection. Uh, right now I'm getting ready to brew in honor of becoming the executive director of the American Homebrewers Association, a, um, a recipe that Charlie Papazian published in Zymergy Magazine. And I, I chased him down and said, I wanna, I wanna honor you, I've walked in your footsteps, you know, I'm gonna brew this, and he sent me his written notes from it, not just the published version that was in Zymergy. Oh, wow. I, yeah, so I have these, like, I usually track down a recipe that somebody else has given me, and there's an emotional connection to trusting that recipe, 
or it was on the homebrewersassociation.org website because I know people that um, contribute those recipes know what they're doing. There's national homebrew um, competition gold medal winning recipes on the website. <laughs> so I like recipes that I know the person often or I know that the person that made that recipe really knows what they're doing and then I, then I go from there. When you're on a brew day, if you're doing, I mean, let, let's take we're doing a five-gallon all-grain batch. What kind of process are you using? Are you using batch sparge? Are you using like an all-in-one brew-in-a-bag method? Brew-in-a-bag is newer to me, and I actually like it. Super efficient and easy. Um, batch sparging is, is more where I landed um, in many years of my actual brewing. Um, I kind of am not as ambitious to go for, say, decoction mashing. Mm -hmm. um, I really, you know, uh, hitting my temperatures. I, I don't live in the mountains, but I live right below it. Um, the weather can change in 10 minutes in Colorado. I tend to like, you know, single infusion um, mash beers that I'm not going to have to do a lot of rests for. Mm -hmm. I've tried to challenge myself in those arenas, and I love doing that. Um, but I often don't hit my targets, which is which is the tough part of, of my system. And then you know what? The Charlie style. I relax, don't worry, have a homebrew, um, and the beer often comes out uh, really good anyway. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is the greatest phrase ever in the English language, I think. But I think yeah. we're a little biased for that one. What would you say then is the best beer that you've ever brewed or like, Basically, the most special beer to you. So, for some reason, I'm going back to this one because the questions ask best and then the one that's most meaningful, which could be different. I do have in my back pocket with my husband as well, um, having brewed the beer, a um, national homebrew competition uh, silver medal winner for an old ale that we brewed in uh, way back in 2003. That's an incredible testament to bag a medal at the NHC and, and National Homebrew Competition is going to happen again. Yes, we are in these times. We're going to have it again in person, which is great. That is awesome. In that competition really is the Super Bowl where if you bag a medal there, it, it's, it's some of the hardest because you're going through multiple rounds mm -hmm. um, and it's really tough. So I would say the best beer I ever brewed was probably that, the Old Ale. Mm -hmm. um, and the most special one I re-brewed now is my third time and it's uh, fermenting away. And it is, I call it Cherry Chica Stout. Mm -hmm. um, I used to go to a homebrew shop in Boulder uh, that's no longer called What's Brewing. Paul Gatza, who is now with still the Brewers Association as senior vice president, um, he gave me that recipe because he at the time happened to work there. And I walked in and said, can I make a stout? He gave me the recipe. I added cherries, um, and then I added the name Chica, Cherry Chica Stout. I bagged a medal at Hot Barley and the Ailers, which is my local homebrew club in Boulder, Colorado, for that. Um, the second time I brewed it, and so I just re-brewed that because that's a really, you know, meaningful recipe near and dear to my heart. And that's that's partial, right? Mm -hmm. That's not all grain. It's kind of um, a low end on the um, gravity level um, for Imperial Stout. Uh, final gravity finished 1026, um, and the cherries kind of certainly bumped up that final gravity. What an amazing tasting beer, and I can't wait to, you know, taste the end result. Hopefully we successfully carbonate it and have it come through clean without oxidation. Nice. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited about that one. That's, that's one of my most meaningful. Very nice. And I was going to say, with the going back to the extract thing, if you want to brew a big beer and not have to lug 22 pounds of grain, that three pounds of uh, extract is your friend. 
Yep. Yep. Because I just brewed, um, I just brewed a beer. Um, I was doing a brew in the bag method with the grandfather, and it had eighteen pounds of grain in it. And just trying to lift that metal basket out of that thing was just—I should have done a sparge on it instead of trying to be quick. So. Yeah, we just did a brave noise too at my house shortly after I started again at the HA, and I brewed that with Dave Carpenter who is editor of Zymergy, Duncan, um, who is the editor of homebrewersassociation.org, and Megan Wapps, who works on behalf of AHA members, and we all brewed it to kind of celebrate new era for the AHA, um, and that was partial, brew in a bag, um, and we definitely were happy with my kettle because it had enough space. <laughs> um, that's where you can get in trouble often when you, you know, bump up bump up the volume a little, you know, and either add more grains um, or there's just uh, so much liquid in there that you run out of headspace basically in your kettle. Yeah. Uh, but that, that beer is super hazy. Um, you know, I'm the first to admit that a hazy pale or an IPA pale is not where I gravitate to out of the gates. Uh, but having brewed it now, it was super rewarding. The oatmeal, now I, I get the, the nuance and the silk and the kind of sultry nature of that oatmeal. In that beer, we talked a lot about it conver you know conversion concerns, um, and it fermented just fine. So it was a really fun one to uh, to brew, and then I and then I ended up pegging that one instead of bottling. Awesome. So then on the flip side, what beer would you consider your your mistake beer, the one that you would never revisit? So I'm gonna go to Mead. I big fan of Mead, uh, honey wine. What uh, my husband and I ended up calling this batch, which was funny and it, it's indicative of the, the question that you're asking me to answer in a perfect way. We ended up calling it pissy ass pimint <laughs> because we were just so just kerfuffled by this entire beverage and kept thinking maybe the more we transferred it, the more we you know doctored it up, the more we helped it along that this pimint, which is fermented um, you know, honey wine with grapes uh, would get better we just did beginner mistake. It sat on the grapes too long. Classic, you know, over tannic, um, almost, you know, super astringent, um, just dried out too much. So we actually had successful fermentation conversion, but that's not always a great thing. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and it, it, it was, we, by the time we were bottling it, we were kind of yelling at that batch and like the vibe with that batch was never strong and like it had terrible sediment in it. We didn't even transferred off the lees properly so pissy ass climate i'm sticking with that answer fair enough mine was a smoked vanilla porter and i don't know what i was thinking with that it was not good ambitious though yeah it was it was actually one of my first all grain brews and um yeah, that was that was a steep learning curve for me that day. So, so as we are in the only pub in the universe where every beer on tap is from a homebrewer, if you were to have your own homebrew pub, what would it be called, and what would the what would the atmosphere be like? Such a fun one! You're gonna have so much fun with this show, and we can be legal in our fictitious mind because it's not legal to sell. Uh, but that's okay. A lot of basement pubs that I've been into in people's houses could probably qualify. Mm -hmm. I would call my homebrew club, and I would also have it also be the name of the rock band. If I had a rock band, I would call it that, is a Dichotomy of Textures. And to me, that's a really deep statement. It's very inviting. Like, huh, what's that about? And then the third word, you know, the last word, textures. So much to me of flavor is mouthfeel. And like, 
if I can just riff on this for a moment, please indulge and allow me to. Please. Uh, flavor is a fusion. Flavor is a fusion of three things. It's a fusion of basic taste, which is sweet, salty, sour, bitter, umami, and there's other um, elements that are emerging, such as oleogustus or fat and the like, but that's basic taste. We physically taste that with our tongue and soft palate. Then another part of taste, and envision I'm taking you through a triangle now, because it's three things. So the flavor triangle, a basic taste I just mentioned, and then the other corner, or one of the other corners of taste, is aroma, the aromatic compound. Um, there's tens of thousands of volatile compounds that we smell, right? We smell with our orthonasal receptors, the nose on the outside of our face. Just think, oh, outside, that's our orthonasal receptors when we're smelling in the glass before we've tasted. But then while you're sampling and tasting, you also sell, smell through your nose in your retronasal passages. So aroma is a huge part of flavor, just like basic taste. But if we really pay attention to the fusion of flavor and the three things that make it up, the third part of that triangle is mouthfeel. And mouthfeel gets at, back to the whole point of my, uh, my, my homebrew pub or rock band name, Dichotomy <laughs> of Textures. Um, to me, textures really complete the equation, right? Textures is everything from temperatures, textures, and pain. Temperatures being the temperature of the beer or the food, right? Textures being the grippiness of tannin polyphenols, right? I mentioned uh, grapes earlier about my, my pyment. That grippiness, um, you know, a tea bag that's steeped too long. Mm -hmm. That's some texture. Texture also ties to carbonation, right? That prickle of uh, carbonic acid. Um, and then pain ties to, uh, in, in, and it can be in beer, but more so in food, uh, you know, capsaicin heat and the spice. Think Tabasco sauce. Um, think horseradish sauce if you're having, you know, sushi. Um, think, uh, think menthol and mint and what happens inside your mouth and your nasal passages when you have really pungent, fresh mint. That's kind of that pain element that triggers the trigeminal nerve in your, um, uh, you know, in your, in your nasal cavity and, and, and frankly, skull. And, and now you're often running on a complete array of what flavor is. And so dichotomy of textures is key because I love the strata of textures. Like, let's take um, uh, Caesar salad. The best Caesar salad has really fresh, fresh, crunchy iceberg lettuce, not just iceberg lettuce that's kind of, you know, uh, flabby and on the way out, right? It's crunchy, straight from the fridge, maybe even had ice in it and water right before they served it to you. And that's a part of Caesar salad's texture. But think about croutons tied to Caesar salad. And then you've got that crunch of crouton crunching along with the iceberg lettuce. And then you've got a creamy aspect of the Caesar dressing. And that's another version of texture. <clears throat> that to me is a dichotomy of three different textures that bring the whole elements together. And the same thing to me goes on in beer, but just described differently. That that was perhaps one of the most amazing descriptions I have ever heard. <laughs> well, good. Okay. That that was incredible. I also think that dichotomy of texture would be the name of a prog rock band. Like you're going to be messing around in fourteen four time signature. You get it. You get it. <laughs> and so, what would the what would the inside of of dichotomy of texture be like? Oh yeah, the vibe. Um, okay, so you're, you know, I, I kind of like sometimes that dark feel of the pub. So it would have two rooms. It would have the, I'm in an old English pub, um, you know, with not as many windows, really, you know, steep, rich chairs, um, smells a little bit like cigars in there. 
has a long old bar from the 1800s that's all built out of wood and hand carved on the on the legs and, and um, standing parts of it. Uh, mirror behind the actual bar, definitely draft with taps for camellias kegs, um, custom tap handles, uh, not necessarily a noisy bar, more quiet. You can come in and read a book. You don't just have to get beer, you can get tea, you know, hotter beverage, doesn't have to be alcohol. And it would have little bites of food. It would have a fireplace that's crackling, like that old English pub feel. And then the other room you could go in just completely explodes that feeling into, wow, pretend it's a patio and the, and the weather's constantly perfect and I'm sitting outside. And we actually will have covers for the glasses so our IPAs don't get light struck in the sunlight. <laughs> the temperature is constantly gonna be 82 degrees. And we're going to uh, just have lounge chairs, water to put our feet into. We're going to have waves in front of us because it's going to be on the beach somewhere. And um, it's much more of a kind of party atmosphere, although you can certainly nap if you go off to the edges of it. I don't know. That's, that's where my mind goes to two very different pubs that could be connected together. Well, as, as we are on a mystical plane, the homebrew pub is just transformed into the dichotomy of textures. And it is glorious. Everyone should join yeah. us here. Right on. So could we add your two favorite beers to the tap collection of the homebrew pub? Um, yeah, so two favorite beers. I'll have one be a homebrew, one be a commercial. Um, and I'm going to challenge anyone to take me on with this because I know how persnickety um, homebrew geeks are. <laughs> Feel free to email me or, or tag me on social if you're upset at my choice, but I don't, I don't, frankly, that's not going to change my choice, but I'd love to have the discussion. So I would put on tap the Cherry Chica Stout. You know, I'd want a, a richer, darker beer and then a lighter everyday session beer. Um, and my everyday session beer is going to be an English mild. I don't see enough of them brewed. I just love them. They, you know, with some dextrin malt, you get enough body and a little bump of mouth feel. And so I think that, you know, that can satisfy the want a darker, richer beer, but it doesn't mean it's high in alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have my cherry chica stout as well um, to complement when you really want to go bigger. I fully agree with the English mild. I actually brew one as my house beer. Nice. That's fantastic. But I'm a little biased towards it. So. <laughs> well, even if you don't come to a national or to the homebrew con, um, you can enter it into the national um, homebrew competition, and I'd, I'd be very curious to see how it does, and I'd love to see more entries in that grouping of categories. So, everyone, we want to get more English miles out there. What do you want your listeners to know um, about your next homebrew pursuit? What do you got? What do you got bubbling away or plans for? Oh, so I just got a grandfather S forty, so I'm currently learning um, how to do that. So. Um, explain, to explain what that is in case others don't know. Oh, sure. The Grainfather S40 is a all-in-one electric system, um, which gives you great temperature control. Um, and um, what's great about it is you can just do it all-in-one, so you're not transferring from vessel to vessel. What I didn't take into account, that it's a 220 volt, so you do have to get a special uh, plug installed for it. So... Um, that doubled the cost of it just a little bit, um, but it is a wonderful piece of equipment. So I'm actually revisiting um, this past weekend. I tried two new recipes on it because I had to do a. I wanted to do a Sam Adams clone with a step um, mash, uh, yeah. raising the temperature, and then I actually just brewed a recipe from uh, homebrewing legend Denny Con. 
um, on it as well because um, he came on our other podcast and that was the beer he brewed on his brand new system. So in honor of Denny, I brewed the beer that he made for us. Um, and then I think the next one's going to be like uh, an actual lager um, and do some real lagering for once. Yep, lagering will be very challenging, as you know, and yet it's so rewarding. Uh, Denny's on the governing committee for the American Homebrewers Association and contributes heavily to the uh, free AHA forum if anyone wants to be a part of a 10,000-plus person community. Um, I love that you're brewing a Sam Adams Boston lager, if that's what you're talking about when that, you say Sam Adams. That is what I'm brewing. Yeah, and that's one of the more complex beers out there. That beer um, definitely has a bump of mouthfeel from uh, barely discernible diacetyl that is strategic. Mm -hmm. uh, that beer is subjected to decoction mashing. Um, when you have Sam Adams Boston Lager, there's a reason why the malt seems so so advanced and, um, and has depth and complexity, even though the ABV is just over 5%. Um, you know, fresh, a fresh Sam Adams is one of the best beers in the country. Uh, if not in, in the world, I think. And it's, it's a beer that's always in my fridge just on that night when I want a quick refresher that's, that's complex. Mm -hmm. so way to go. I, I'm excited for all of those to come to fruition. Mm, thank you. And thank you so much for visiting uh, the, the Homebrew Pub. This has been absolutely amazing. Well, you are kind. I thank you. I look forward to listening to shows and following your journeys. Keep in touch. And to anyone listening... Uh, certainly enjoy your home brewing. Good beers to you, and let me know how the AHA can uh, can help you reach your home brewing goals. Um, and I hope you join us um, through uh, you know the community that's out there for you. And I also hope you're connected with your local homebrew club. I really want to thank Julia Hurst for joining me in the homebrew pub today. Julia will be posting the recipe to her beer on the AHA website and we'll be linking out to that in the show notes when it's ready. So please check back for that. And of course, thank you so much for listening. If you could leave us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcast, that'll just help other people find the show. If you want to reach out to us, possibly come on and share a pint with me. You can reach us at our website, thehomebrewpub.com, or email landlord at thehomebrewpub.com, or on social at thehomebrewpub on Instagram and Twitter. And if, like me, you hate those annoying ads, well, we've got to keep the lights on here at the Homebrew Pub somehow. So consider joining our Patreon and becoming a Mug Club member. For $3 a month, you'll get access to ad-free versions of the episodes. But until then, grab your favorite pint, put your feet up, relax, don't worry, and have a homebrew. Till next time, cheers.